Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. This episode is also supported by our sponsor, Osea Malibu, the original plant-based results-driven skincare line. I was really excited to share this with you because I've actually been using Osea's skincare myself for the past few years, and I love it. The Hyaluronic C Serum specifically has been helping to keep my skin hydrated in this dry climate in California. To get $10 off your first purchase of $50 or more, you can head to oseamalibu.com slash greendreamer, and the discount will automatically be applied when you check out. Again, that's oseamalibu.com slash green dreamer. Right now, I believe that the role of medics is to protest, to be honest. I, I really think that we need that the government, our governments are being negligent and that we need to create more tension to help change the, the system in which our government is run. I genuinely believe that. That was Dr. Chris Newman, a family physician based in London who founded Doctors for Extinction Rebellion, a group of physicians who believe it is their duty as doctors to speak out about climate change. Stay tuned as we're about to explore why it may be necessary to create some sort of disruption in our modern society, such as through civil disobedience, in order to redirect the path that we're on the environmental impact of the healthcare industry and what can be done about that, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I was brought up in the suburbs of Manchester, which is a northern city in England, and so I was very much around nature a lot of the time, you know, playing in the garden, getting muddy, playing with worms, climbing trees, all that kind of stuff. And so I always had um, a pleasant feeling for it. And I think things were expanded a lot because I took a year out in my late 20s and lived on a few different eco farms, like permaculture farms. And there I was exposed to lots of different people who like super, super empathetic people who really, really cared. And we were living there with no electricity and working the fields. And it was all a very, very simple, basic existence. And I think that kind of exposure to all these different, very loving people who all cared for the environment deeply, all like vegans and part of the WWF and all about protecting the environment, that was an exposure that I'd never had before in my life. And that kind of shifted in a way, my trajectory towards environmentalism. Anyway, mm. the family medicine thing, I find it very fascinating, actually. So I, I loved acute medicine. I loved A&E, as we call it in the UK, or ER, as you call it over there in the States. Um, I love pediatrics. And the, the good thing about family medicine is that you get to see a bit of everything. You get to see uh, over here anyway. You, you get to see the oldest old and the youngest young mm. and everything in between. So in April of this year, 2019, you started Doctors for XR, which is short mm -hmm. for Extinction Rebellion. So let's first start there for our listener who may not be so familiar. What exactly is the Extinction Rebellion movement? What does it stand for and what has been its approach? 
Okay, so Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion is essentially it's a group of people who are taking a non-violent protest against government to protest against the trajectory that our that our government and the governments around the world seem to be taking us down, which is one of extremely scary climate change and ecological destruction, and one which is going to seriously impact everyone and everything. And because of decades of insufficient action through all the different things people have been doing, such as writing papers, making films, talking about it, there seemed to be insufficient action because things just remained on a, on a bad trajectory. So it was felt that things had to be stepped up, really, to create an increased tension in the system. So people started Extinction Rebellion to essentially rebel against a negligent government. And that was set up in the UK. As I understand it, there were about 15 people. I wasn't one of them. 15 uh, of the founders who were sitting together in a cafe trying to figure out what to do next because they were all coming from a position of climate grief, really, and sort of, you know, what do we do next? And they had been researching not just climate change and ecological destruction, but also social movements and how they work. And through their research, a lot of which was done by a chap called Roger Hallam, they figured that the best way for a system change is nonviolent direct action, which is the approach that Extinction Rebellion had been taking. So what then prompted you to start your own chapter of Doctors for XR? So I've been progressively becoming more environmentally conscious through lots of different things. There's been lots of BBC work from people like David Attenborough, who's a big environmentalist over here. And the more of these things I've seen, the more I've pondered what I do. And so I became an environmental vegetarian about a year ago, and I started using less stuff and producing less waste about eight months ago. I made more of an effort. And so I was kind of becoming more this person who cares in a way. And then when Extinction Rebellion kicked off, which was last October, but much more so in April 2019, I was watching these news reports of people interviewing Extinction Rebellion activists. And it was some of them were absolutely horrible to these activists. They were calling them arrogant, middle class people who just wanted to show that they were better than everyone else and that they were just being an inconvenience to the world. And I was really annoyed because I've been looking into it a lot. I knew it was a big issue. And to see these people sort of put into this box of hippie idealist was something that was just I was really, really annoyed about it, actually. And I was I actually had a few days off work at the time. And I just thought what this movement needs is it needs people who are professionals like nurses, doctors, people who are really, really trusted to come out and say, you know what, this is a thing. And I will join these guys on the streets protesting as well. And I felt that the media would struggle to try to put us in that box as well, because mm. fortunately we have a position in society, which means that we listen to it a bit more, fortunately. So it was just this feeling that this is happening. Here's a big opportunity for a, a big movement to grow and I could actually do something about it. So I just spent basically all night till about 7 a.m. recording a video 
about why I felt that doctors should step up and why it's our duty to step up. And I made a website about it and I sent it to everyone in my <laughs> address book <laughs> and Facebook and said, who's basically, who's in, send an email to this email address at doctorsforxr.com. And then like within a week, there were 70 people in a WhatsApp group chatting away. Mm-hmm. And we had our first meeting about six or seven days later in someone I'd never met before's house. And there were about 15 of us having dinner discussing what doctors could do about it. And that was April. This is super inspiring to hear how you went from having this idea in your mind to actually making it happen. So I hope that this can really, it certainly inspired me and I'm sure it'll inspire our listeners as well. Traditionally, people may not think of doctors as being protesters or for taking part in civil disobedience. So was this a challenge for you at all in getting your colleagues on board? And did you guys get any pushback from the medical community in general? It's interesting. So it is a challenge, but equally, the number of people who, the number of doctors and nurses who have been sitting behind desks, crying at night, really worried about their kids, getting involved in advocacy, writing papers, there's been so many, and they, they were waiting for something to come out. That's why there were so many people who came out so quickly. And the fact that we formed a group, like a group of quite a large amount of people so quickly was really reassuring and made the journey a lot easier. If it had been five or six people for three months, it would have been mm. difficult. There have, has been pushback. I know lots of my colleagues are often berated at work for saying, oh, are you talking about climate change again? And I think that's just because it's not something that's traditionally been looked, been looked at as part of health, which is changing because that's an issue. So let's talk about that. What evidence do we have that climate change is a threat to public health? And consequently, this is something that more doctors should step out and speak up about. There's a lot of data and science being produced by climate scientists. I'm not a climate scientist, so it's, that's not data, data that I can discuss in any great detail. However, we have lots of big reports produced by these big groups like the IPCC, who've I think they put together six or 7,000 papers on the topic in order to produce these reports. You've got IPBES, which produced data on ecological disruption and species loss. And so as a, as a scientist, we frequently collaborate on things. So I'm a general, I'm a family physician. So if, I, if there's an issue with someone's heart that we can't deal with in the practice, I will refer them to a specialist whom I trust. So we're used to working together and trusting other scientists and other groups of scientists to produce guidelines and reports. So as a medic, when I see these, this data that says if we continue at the current trajectory, that the climate will heat up by three or four degrees by the, uh, Celsius. That's, I think, about, hang on, three to four, that's probably about six or seven degrees, I think, Fahrenheit. Um, by the end of the century. That's very worrying, especially when you then have people from my profession, public, um, public health doctors, who start to do sort of modelling around how that's going to affect uh, health. And you've got various things that are going to be affected. So you, first of all, you've got exposure to extremes. That's going to mean heat wave deaths and deaths from things that you see much more over your side of the world 
hurricanes, typhoons on the other side, on the on the east uh, around Japan, China. Obviously, you get droughts and you get flooding and you get disease changes. So I think in America you had West Nile virus, which we don't have in the UK, which is known to be a climate change related mosquito borne disease. But we're also looking at the UK, which hasn't had malaria for a very long time. There's even government reports saying that we're going to have malaria in the south coast in a few decades if things continue the same way. And there are UN reports that show that we're going to be producing up almost 20% less food by 2050 if things stay the same way. And all these things interact together. So it's not just one thing. It's, it's the cumulative effect of things which is going to impact the physical and mental health of future generations. Mm. Traditionally, I feel like Western medicine is more focused on sick care and on treating illness and less focused on illness prevention. This is, of course, changing and, and that's really great. But why do you think it's important for the medical community now to be more proactive, speaking out against climate inaction? I think it's just a case of providing the maximum tension in the system. So my role traditionally has been, you know, to, to, to deal with my community, but in order to, to make the changes to safeguard, you know, the environment, working in my community is not going to do it. It needs to be, you need to go for the big levers in society, and that's the political ones. And the only way that we can have any impact on, on policy, which is what we need to do, is either by writing reports, which we've been doing for many, many years. I mean, there was even one, I believe it was the Union of Concerned Scientists. This is about 22 years ago. I think 1997, they got over a thousand scientists and over a hundred Nobel Prize winners who all wrote a document saying this is serious stuff and we need to change it now. And, you know, they weren't listened to. So right now, I believe that the role of medics is to protest, to be honest. I, I really think that we need that the government, our governments are being negligent and that we need to create more tension to help change the, the system in which our government is run. I genuinely believe that. And I, I don't think there's any other thing that I can do as a doctor to try and safeguard the population other than do that. Right. It's really crazy to and baffling to think about how long we've known the science and how long we've had such substantial information showing that it's happening and its associated risks as well, and yet no meaningful action has been taken. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Whenever you bring these reports up, I mean, people will say, yeah, it's a problem, but it's not a problem right now. And the, the issue is, is this is almost like the worst type of problem to hit humanity because it's a it's a long-term problem and it's something that you can't tangibly see in front of you and so because people can't see it they just think oh it's not a thing then but it's it's growing and growing and growing and it's invisible and then it's going to it's going to be well, it could potentially wipe us out but if it doesn't do that it will severely wound us right I always think about it like how I think about chronic illness. So in order to stay healthy, we have to do things on a day-to-day -day basis to prevent disease. But when we're living unhealthily, we may not see the long-term effects of that until we are diagnosed with chronic illness. And by that time, it may be too late to completely turn things around. Yeah. Everyone's heard of high blood pressure. So they call that a silent killer. 
And the reason why it's called silent killer is because it, it gives no symptoms. So you don't know you have it. So that's why we screen for it, right, Russ? Well, that's why you, you'll go to your doctor and they'll do your blood pressure all the time. It's because you don't always know you've got it. And if you don't detect it, if you live with it for 10, 20 years and it's high and it's doing damage to your body, to all of the blood vessels that run through your entire body, to every single organ, doing damage every day, every week, every month. And unless you detect it, you can't then change it. And the thing is with climate change is it's a similar thing. It's like this. It's like a silent killer, but we have detected it now. And we're behaving like, I mean, I, I get patients who you tell them this stuff and you say, look, this is really going to give you a heart attack or a stroke if you don't do anything. And you, you say, look, it could actually kill you. And they still don't believe you because they think, oh, I'm healthy now. Mm. So it's fine. And they just don't believe you. And it's like society is behaving in the same way as that, that character. Right. So in your patients, I mean, what does it usually take for people to really wake up to their diagnoses and create change within their own lives? Genuinely, a heart attack. Mm. Genuinely, those kind of people, you see it, you, they have they have a heart attack and then they change. And you, you ask people, you know, what, what, why did you stop smoking? I had a heart attack, I had a stroke. You know, that's that's often what it takes, unfortunately, for them to change. Or maybe someone in their family having a heart attack or a stroke. But it's something that brings the reality closer because they it's not tangible enough for them to change. That or, you know, some nagging spouse who could perhaps <laughs> help them to change. Right. And we have to get creative sometimes with the way that we tell information. As a physician, you kind of change the way that you tell someone information depending on the way that they the way that they see the world so for some people who may be quite anxious about their blood pressure you know you'll you'll, you'll couch it in nice language but for someone who isn't listening you will have to take closer and closer steps and say oh, look this is going to kill you do you want you know you're not going to see your child grow up they're going to have to bury you and you kind of have to bring in all these other things to help them imagine the actual real world problems that's going to cause them you know you might have to have an amputation if you tell a guy you might not be able to get an erection if if, if this goes on that soon is something that can help switch them around because that's what they care about so what do you hope to accomplish by bringing doctors together in support of this movement and what approach are you guys taking to achieve that so what do you hope to achieve um to help stop it genuinely <laughs> but i mean this is a this is something that's never happened before Humanity has never seen a collective issue that the whole world has to tackle together ever before. Like we've never done it. Mm. So how will we fix it? I genuinely don't know. But the only way that I can perceive it happening is just that if we, we, we need to increase the amount of knowledge and care within the system. And like I said before, papers, writing stuff, saying stuff hasn't done it. So we need to start doing more proactive civil resistance against it. Mm -hmm. That's what I think we need to do. And what role can doctors in particular play in that is because we're trusted, we can help our governments listen. But not just that. I think it's not just a UK issue or, or a US issue. This is like an international issue. And around the world, we have governments which are more oppressive than our, than the UK government is. In a way, we're very lucky. You can do quite a lot of stuff here and, you know, you'll get a slap on the wrist. In some places, you get shot. And some sorts of civil disobedience will be tackled in that way in other countries. 
And I think possibly the root in is children, you know, children protesting. Governments wouldn't be able to get away with doing that kind of stuff to children, Mm -hmm. thankfully. And I think another root in is professionals, people who the government don't want to be seen. You know, people that they spent a lot of money training these people and their society depends on these people to function. If those people start protesting, the government would have a much trickier time in dealing with them in that sort of a way. So I think the health profession in general has a big role in spreading the movement into countries which are often have people pointing fingers at and saying, oh, they don't do enough, which is not true, but it will probably help get into those countries more. Mm. I've seen in online forums, people saying things like, oh, youth activists, like they need to go back to school or actors and actresses and singers who voice their opinions about environmental issues. Oh, like just stay in your lane. So it sounds like we're at this point where we need everybody across all professions, especially the ones that traditionally may not may not be viewed as being as having taken part in civil disobedience. So we need everybody across the board to participate now. Yeah. And, and there's going to be pushback. Like we're creating intentionally creating discomfort in society. And there are some people, especially people who've who've lived longer, people have lived you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 years in a society that seems to have functioned relatively well for them. And then you start telling them, oh, you know, you have to change now because of because of the kids or because of people in Bangladesh and, you know, the countries that are worst hit at the minute. They've got so much of their life invested in in, in, in their way of that their way of life is good and, and OK. And if you then say, well, actually, you've been living a lie for the past 50 years. They don't, people don't take it very well, you know. So there will be a lot of pushback, especially, I think, amongst older people and people who have more to lose in the short term anyway. Mm. So I'm, I'm not surprised there are people who come out and say, you know, stay in your lane. Right. Uh, and also the fossil fuel industry is behaving like the tobacco industry behaved earlier on last century in that the tobacco industry knew full well that smoking damaged people's health and yet they continued to spread disinformation and they lobbied and they did all this kind of stuff to make more short-term gains and we know they've done that that we that I mean that that happened and that's exactly what the fossil fuel industry is doing right now i mean if fossil fuels were good things for society they wouldn't have to spend so much money lobbying government and providing disinformation campaigns I know your goal is largely to try to drive political action, but I want to talk about the healthcare industry a little. Mm -hmm. So an article published in the BMJ, which is a weekly peer-reviewed medical journal, stated the NHS, National Health Service, is one of the UK's biggest contributors to climate change. The NHS must behave as an environmental anchor to mitigate the impacts of climate change. Based on your knowledge, what are some of the primary ways that the healthcare industry and the field of medicine may currently be contributing to our ecological crises? Across the whole world, I think healthcare is would be the equivalent of the fifth biggest polluter. If it was a country, it would be the fifth biggest polluter. So we know that healthcare causes a lot of damage as well as doing a lot of good. I was actually at a conference with Healthcare Without Harm which is an international organization set up in the, in the US, which is looking at this precise issue. 
And it was found that approximately 70% of our emissions come in the form of procurement, which is the things that we buy and use within healthcare, and that a lot of those emissions are actually outsourced. So, for example, in the UK, only about 40% of our emissions occur within the UK. We outsource over half, you know, so we'll be buying stuff in from probably India, probably China. So a lot of it is about supply chain, about being aware of where stuff comes from and making sure the people who have who pull the purse strings know where they're getting things. And one of the levers that they're trying to use is, it, one of the ways they're trying to do this is, is, to, is to buy more stuff locally. Because if you buy it locally, you have more of an, an idea of where it comes from. And you also keep money within the community and you help the community stay strong. Um, so there's, yeah, there's lots of stuff going around procurement. Mm. Now, I know for hygiene reasons, obviously, a lot of the medical tools have to be single use and disposable. Do you see a way in which that can be changed for that to be closed loop while still being, of course, safe first and foremost? So this is actually a really tricky issue to raise because it's almost like there's the hygiene argument, okay, that the more, and it's almost like we don't want to, to give people disease caused through unhygienic implements, but almost, you know, every every year or two, someone produces a more hygienic way to do something. But it always involves more resources and more disposability. And the difficulty is, is that the more hygienic we've got, the more waste we produce. And the question is, how hygienic is hygienic enough? So if, for example, I produce a syringe, let's not use a syringe, let's say a speculum, which is used for gynecological examination. Let's say that's produced and it has a 0.01% infection risk. Well, let's say someone produces one that is half the infection risk. Is that good? Is that bad? Um, well, you would think it was good, but what if it produces 10 times the amount of, of waste? You know what I mean? It's not, it's not a straightforward question, and it's a very difficult one, and it depends on what you value. So if you only value hygiene, you'll always go for the thing that produces the most waste. But then we have to draw a line somewhere, and the question is, where is the line? And we, we haven't really had much of that discussion, because we used to sterilize everything. So we used to have single-use lots of single-use surgical equipment, and it was sterilized. And the, the question about is that, you know, should we return to sterilization and reusing the same equipment? Should we do that or should we, should we continue with single-use? That's a tricky question. That's right. a very tricky question. I'm not going to necessarily side on, uh, because I, don't, I perhaps don't know enough of the figures to, to exactly say where I would stand on this line, but I would say it's a... The, the amount of waste we produce is a concern right. and it's not necessarily the right thing to always push greater and greater and greater hygiene over waste. So, I mean, it seems like there are definitely no easy answers, but definitely a topic that we can hopefully research more and look more into as time goes on from here. Yeah. So with all this in mind, what are some ways that you feel like we or people who don't work in the healthcare industry, how can we help green the healthcare industry? Or what are some initiatives that we can support? There are a couple of things. These are kind of disease-specific or problem-specific. So, for example, if someone is an asthmatic, they can request an inhaler that doesn't use 
HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, which we know are incredibly strong greenhouse gases. We look, we're talking about thousands of times as strong as CO2. Um, these things are used in fridges and in aircon, but they're also, they're, all, they're also the propellant used in a lot of uh, inhalers. And the ones that are far, far, far more environmentally friendly are called dry powder inhalers. And these ones, they're felt to be equivalent in terms of effectiveness for most people. So that if you're asthmatic, ask for a dry powder inhaler. If someone is due to have an operation, there is an anesthetic gas called desflurane. I know we're getting a bit technical, but this is like many, many, many times more environmentally toxic than equivalent gases such as sevoflurane. So if someone is going for an operation soon, they could realistically request from their doctor, from their anesthetist, that they do not use desflurane for their operation because it has no benefit. There's no clinical benefit from that one. Other things might include not wasting medicines and also having a chat with the doctor. I'm not suggesting that you go in and talk to your doctor only about climate, but, <laughs> but these are things that need to be mentioned in passing and just they could inform their doctor of organizations like ours mm. or other organizations that are perhaps slightly less confrontational, you could say, such as MEDACT or Healthcare Without Harm, like I mentioned. It may become a case in the future where doctors start to put their green credentials when they advertise themselves, which they don't do over here because we're a national, national health service. But in America, they might start to do that, say, oh, no, I'm a green doctor. And I, I think there's actually a, I think there's actually something in America called the Green Doctor where you can find someone who is environmentally friendly, I think. But that, if not, that will come. We'll definitely keep all of this in mind. And overall, it sounds like you were initially pleasantly surprised by the amount of support you received from your colleagues for starting Doctors for XR, mm -hmm. which we hope you will only gather together more and more doctors and we'll do our best to refer our doctors towards this group as well. But to close, what do you think we can learn from how you started this from ground zero to bring together people who share a similar mission? So how can we also galvanize more people among our circles of influence so that collectively this movement can continue to diversify and grow? I basically started a conversation. Most of the people that joined, they'd been thinking of this, but hadn't talked about it very much. And they were galvanized by the fact that there were so many other people out there. So I think, talk about it, talk about it more, uh, start groups and talk about it with your colleagues, form groups at work. There are people out there just like you, absolutely. Before we go into our final five, I wanted to let you know that I just went live with my second podcast. It's called The Kamea Shane Show, and it's an offshoot of Green Dreamer. So I'll be exploring similar themes and topics in shorter episodes, and they'll mostly be solo. So just you and me. I didn't really plan much before starting it, and that's kind of the point, I guess. It's going to be more open-ended, informal, and casual, and I would love to get your feedback as well on what topics you'd like me to explore, any questions you have for potential Q&A episodes, and etc. It would make me so happy to have you there as well, so please come on over to kameashane.com slash subscribe to get all the links you need to find the podcast. Or you can also just search for The Kamea Shane Show. And to get my episodes and personal newsletter sent to your inbox, you can sign up at kameashane.com slash newsletter. I hope to catch you there, but for now, to our final five. Let's power through. 
What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow, or a book that's been really profound for you? So actually, I would reference there was an Extinction Rebellion book which was called "This Is Not a Drill," and I was very, very, and still I'm a little bit concerned about what the rebellion is like, what it's like to be a non-violent protester. And reading this, all the beautiful stories from the ground of what it was like, really gave me a tangible idea of what I was getting into. And made me feel that actually it wasn't as bad and as scary as it had felt looking at it in the press. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? <laughs> you know what? What I do is I go and I hang around people who think like me and also want to take action. And it's that collective responsibility and collective love for the planet that that's what keeps me motivated. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? And、um, to be honest, I've been. Kind of absolutely flat out since April. So <laughs> what I'm working on is delegation, because <laughs> it's yeah, there's a lot to do. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? I am working to create more media-worthy, non-violent direct protests by medics alone, in order that we can get in the press, in order to create more conversation. And it may be by the time this goes out that that's already happened. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? The kids' protest is definitely, I think, the most hopeful thing. They understand it, they get it, and they know that they've got momentum on their side. So, absolutely, the kids. Well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Chris's work, you can head to www.doctorsforxr.com, and you can also follow him on Twitter at drchrisnewman and at doctorsxr on Instagram at drchrisnewman or on Facebook at doctorsforxr. I'll have all this linked in the show notes as well, so be sure to reference all of this at greendreamer.com. Chris, if our listeners are working in the healthcare industry and want to get involved with your work or support. What you're doing,、um, what would you recommend they do? They can email us. There's a Facebook group as well. They can get in contact on Facebook. That's the Doctors for XR. And yeah, I would say get in contact first of all. And there are plenty of other organisations all around America, and what, in fact, whatever country they're in. But if they're stuck somewhere, come for Doctors to XR, and we'll put you in touch with the right people. Great! Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your wealth of wisdom with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? We're not going to see enough change quickly enough unless we create the maximum tension that we can in society. It will be it will be uncomfortable, but we're not going to get change without discomfort. You know, if you're a gym goer, there's no pain, no gain, right? And we need to to create that so that humanity. Can imagine and you know compassionately find a way out of it. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. I'd like to take another moment to thank our sponsor, Osea Malibu, a skincare line founded by a family of women inspired by the sea, and that formulates botanical-powered products that have shown proven results for all skin concerns. To get ten dollars off your first purchase of fifty dollars or more, you can head to oseamalibu.com/greendreamer. Again, that's oseamalibu.com/greendreamer. Oh, and if you're in the LA area, make sure to stop by their Osea Venice Skincare Studio for their therapeutic facials. 
As always, you can sign up to our weekly digest to get solutions-driven news delivered to you at greendreamer.com slash subscribe. And if you want to come say hello to let me know that you're tuning in, you can find me on Instagram at greendreamerpodcast or at Kamea Shane. As we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.